I'm Charlie Melcher, founder of the future of storytelling. Welcome to the FOSS podcast. Working with emerging media as a storyteller requires a special kind of person. Not only do you have to wade into the turbid waters of developing and using nascent technology, but you also have to rethink and reinvent even the most basic elements and pillars of our narrative craft. It requires experimentation and innovation in techniques, thought, theory, and even language. This is something our guest today, Jessica Brillhart, knows a thing or two about. Jessica is the director of USC's Institute for Creative Technologies Mixed Reality Lab and founder of Vray Pictures, an immersive VR content company. She's considered an expert and pioneer in the field of virtual reality for her early work with the Jump platform at Google. During that time, she developed a whole new way to talk about film in the context of VR and devised many of the groundbreaking techniques that are still being used in the world of VR today. Jessica is an innovator across many fields of immersive storytelling. As a director, writer, and theorist, she's worked in spatial audio, virtual reality, and now in computer-human interaction. She's collaborated with NASA, Bose, the Philharmonic Orchestra in London, and Google's Artists and Machine Intelligence program. It's truly a pleasure to have such a talented and groundbreaking innovator of immersive storytelling on the show. Please join me in welcoming Jessica Brillhart to the Faust podcast. Jessica Brillhart, welcome to the Faust podcast. Thanks, Charlie. It's good to good to quote unquote be here. <laughs> yeah, it's great to be here with you. <laughs> You've been such a brilliant creator of virtual reality and somebody who has helped to define and push the language of the medium. But at one point, you were just starting with it like everybody else and had never you know, used a, a VR camera before. What was it like for you when you first had to figure out how to use that fancy rig? <laughs> I wouldn't call it fancy, but it certainly was something. Um, I didn't look to be involved in VR or anything immersive, to be honest. I was at Google at the time. I was a filmmaker there for five years as part of the creative lab. I was kind of getting into a bit of a rut. And just one day, I got an email in my inbox uh, from a group of engineers who were part of the cardboard team, which was a very small team at the time. They asked if I was interested in creating immersive experiences, <laughs> and I didn't really know what that meant. And so I didn't respond because I thought maybe they had sent it to the wrong person. And then I got another email a few days later. So finally I responded and said, you know, I'm open-minded. I'm happy to check it out. And so ended up following it to Mountain View. And it was kind of like a, their demo day. First time they were showing off some stuff. And so the, the engineers like put me in the in a headset and they showed me this thing. And it was a almost like a 3D printed rig circle with 16 GoPros. And if and I, I don't even like working with one GoPro, and here I had like 16 <laughs> GoPros in this array. And 
I just kind of looked at it and, you know, I said, okay, well, and asked them point blank, you know, well, what do you want me to do with this? And they looked back at me and said, well, we were hoping you would tell us, which started my journey into this crazy space. That rig is basically holding 16 GoPros that are facing in all directions. It has a stand on the bottom. The way the rig is actually created um, has the cameras oriented in such a way that you are able to stitch together this footage into one seamless stereoscopic video sphere. So you discovered this crazy 16 GoPro rig thing. It's big, it's yeah, bulky, it's yeah. awkward. It's not like any camera you've ever shot with. Well, you know what? It was actually, uh, the rig itself was actually pretty portable. Essentially, I was tasked to go out into the world and, and film with mm. it. And it was just me and, and uh, my producer at the time, Nick Kadner, and we were out there, we went to Puerto Rico, we went to, uh, well, we we lost a, one of our rigs in Puerto Rico because we were on Arecibo, the largest, you know, what used to be the largest radio telescope in the world that no longer exists at all. We were on there and there was a, there was this platform that I wanted them to move but but the the worker there and us we had no idea that it was going to move that much and so it it moved and the rig just went like pfft, oh no and just all the GoPros like went everywhere so we went to back to San Francisco to get a new rig filmed in the redwoods there went to Tokyo and a place called Bunny Island it's an island that is usually filled with bunnies that is one of the probably my lowest points in the entire trip oddly enough why is that? Why was that a low point? Uh, so we get to this island, which requires you to take two trains, a bus, and a boat. It's an eight-hour trip. We get there. This island just has tons of bunnies on it, and you see all these YouTube videos of these people being attacked by, like, a big crowd of fluffy, adorable bunnies. Sounds great. And of course, it's like, yeah, I was like, wouldn't that be great if you were in this experience and just like these bunnies just suddenly like jumped on you? Wouldn't that be awesome? So we get there. I'm sure if every if anything else fails, or if everything else fails, the bunny island footage is going to be what really sells this thing. <laughs> we get there, uh, and the bunnies are nowhere to be found. Like... They're, they're gone. And the ones that we find are like fat and sitting under trees or under bushes. And it turns out that the bunnies had been fed a, a lot because there was a holiday before we had gotten there. So everyone had gone onto this island and fed the bunnies loads of stuff. So, and we came with kibble. So it wasn't like we came with anything <laughs> going to be attractive to a full bunny. You know, these other people had carrots and leaves and all sorts of stuff, and we were just, like, you know, very ill-prepared. It was really hot, so the rigs weren't working because, I mean, they're just, again, 16 GoPros are overheating, and you can't, if one overheats, the whole thing's not going to work. And I think at one point, a bunny does show up and tries to eat whatever kibble I had in my hand, and without even realizing it, I just swatted it out of the way. <laughs> I just, at that point, was like, what am I even doing? Down in the dumps on the bunny island. <laughs> it's, it's crazy to think that way, but yeah, it, it was. Um, I wasn't sure what was going to happen to me at that point, or anything, to be honest. 
And the goal of this was to do a sort of round-the-world trip of footage that could then be turned into a VR film. Precisely. And when we got back with all of this footage, I had a month to create a, essentially a montage of uh, all of the world experiences that we had. You know, I was banging my head on the desk, literally, because, I mean, ev nothing was working for us. You know, you couldn't edit 8K footage of this kind in a in premiere. It just didn't happen. No one's ever done it before. So again, we were chugging along, and I had to figure out a language for editing VR in, at that point, it was like a week. I think I it was, it was still didn't, hadn't figured it out. So um, I've been thinking about this the way that a film editor thinks about this, as, you know, stringing a bunch of frames together. But what was happening was my frame wasn't necessarily going to be someone else's frame in the experience. And what I was dealing with were, were worlds of potential frames that had an infinite possibility, you know, of, of what could occur. And my job was really to figure out, like, are there patterns here? Is, are there attention points here? Where is the frame most likely going to land? Where could it land? And that was really the key. It, was, it wasn't about me at all anymore or my perspective. It was about understanding the possibilities that this world that I captured delivered. And that opened up a whole new set of thinking for you about how to, what the language of VR was. Totally. I mean, once I understood that I was working with a world-based medium, not a frame-based medium, I was like, well, what else is different? You know, like, what else can I translate here? Like, if, if, if the frame is a world now, then, like, how do I determine where frames could fall and I started really th thinking about attention and engagement, um, which I discovered and, uh, is, is really the language for all mm. of this. It's, it's, it's all about attention. It's always been. And I knew that there are all sorts of ways to explore that. Like, you know, what does it mean to have a close-up, medium shot, and wide shot now that this was all about attention? Well, you could think of it as if there is a clear one attention point, a single attention point, you're engaging with that probably the most. Uh, and in a close-up in film, you know, the frame that I show you is on a singular object, usually a person's face, right? And so I'm paying attention to that person only. So you could see that, you know, in some ways translating. So being able to capture that, that feeling in VR really helped to solidify that point. It was more about energy, establishing space, allowing for you to get settled and just to experience the environment around you without any sort of object objective. And then if you take all this, these translations from, you know, single points of attention, couple points of attention, no attention, all attention, whatever, each of these like kind of blocking of experiences, if you strung them together, became a flow. You know, narrative flow, what does that mean? What is a beginning, middle, and end to a journey? I enjoy hearing this story that you just told because to me it's kind of a um, creation story, right? Yeah. It's, it's yeah. both in that kind of biblical sense but also in the birth of a medium. You're working with what became the jump camera system right. or rig. And yeah. that was the first VR film kind of made for Google, made with Google's platform and technology. And you went on to be the principal VR filmmaker for Google and and as such, had a lot of influence. Like there's, there were a lot of people 
following in your footsteps or being inspired or using those tools and getting really excited and you were through trial and error learning and figuring out the language of this medium of, of VR that's distinct from film and had the ability to share that through your public speaking, teaching, lectures, and just the good work you were doing. I guess I'm curious, you know, as somebody who who was there kind of in the beginning of VR and helped to push it forward, how are you feeling about it as a medium today and the progress that it's made? That's a really good question. I, I will have to say there are definitely, I stand on the shoulders of giants, you know, Janet Murray, Jaron Lanier, um, Scott Fisher, like a number of folks who were, you know, in this well before I came along. That said, you know, I do feel like a bit of an old fogey at this point. Like, it hasn't been that long. <laughs> but I feel like I've gone through, like, I don't know, the trenches. And it's such a different world now than it was when I started, for sure. Um, I feel like VR still has a great deal of potential. I do think there's a lot more to unravel with it. Like, there are things that I'm still trying to grapple with myself. Nick actually passed away, gosh, I don't even know how many years ago, like four years ago. And he was like the only other person who really understood what we had gone through. It was, it was awful. He was the only other person who saw what we had to do and, and went through that with us. Um, and he, you know, I had all this VR footage of us together, <laughs> you know? Like, I would be going and I would, and even being in world tour again, I felt myself like I knew he was around there somewhere. Um, and I remember having a conversation with one of his really good friends who at the time worked at Jaunt. And he was like, "We, you know, you ha I know you have all this footage. Do you think you could send us some from, for his parents? And I had a bit of a crisis with that because I'm like, well, I don't know. You know, I always think about it like, what if they want him back so badly that they don't get out of the headset? I know it was a bit of an exaggeration. Like, you know, they probably would know when to get out. Um, but things like that where it's like, if you can't, should you remember everything? Like, is that really what we, I mean, memories, right? Like a, the ability to go back in time and, and be with loved ones, be in places that we visited, there's something really beautiful about that, but there's also something that could be quite psychologically um, damaging, I think, you know, especially given the rise of addiction to, you know, the reason why, for instance, the reason why people are addicted to video games isn't because video games are violent and people love violence. It's because the video games provide a world that is better than their own. You know, it's like if I can be on Fortnite and be like the champion and when I'm out of that, I work at, you know, the grocery store and no one pays attention to me, like which which world would you choose, right? And so I, I, you know, I think about that when it comes to VR as well. It's like if we create these really amazing worlds for folks to, to go to, will they ever want to go back to their physical ones? I certainly haven't had that problem in VR. I, Not yet. I have to say, um, yeah, I, there have been some good things, but I'll, I'll tell you, I was just recently visiting the Tribeca. I forget what they call it, but uh, uh, like uh, I guess Storyscapes or Storyscapes. Thank you. Yes, yeah. and looked at a bunch of the VR, and and I have to say, I was surprised that it hadn't evolved more 
in the yeah. in the many years that we have both been working and and experiencing these pieces. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and certainly, you're right. There have been previous waves of VR that go back to whatever it was, the the late '50s or, or '60s, mm-hmm. and then others along the way. But in this current incarnation, which let's say got you know really launched with Oculus uh, with with Facebook purchasing Oculus, and there was a lot of innovation in in, in the early days with people like yourself and Felix and Paul and Chris Milk and others. And then I sort of feel like. We haven't. Not much has happened in the last five years. <laughs> so I have a I have a theory, Charlie. Oh, why that is? I just don't think we're good at experiencing anything anymore. This is a mm. medium that's entirely about how we experience the world. It's by nature that I mean we're in, we're put in a place, and then it's all about us interacting with that place or with that space or no matter what it is. We we still have those same urges to be aware and to be safe. We still have that curiosity of interacting with, with objects and having those objects respond to us. We just are so used to, I think, screen-based technologies and media that even as a creator, it's hard to grasp the fact that this is nothing to do with you sitting back and just witnessing what's going on. It's, it's about experience. I'm all for experience, and by the way, I think that we are still, as human beings, as a, as our species, we're designed for experience. Yeah. Right? We have all these sensors and senses, and, and right. we operate in a three-dimensional world. I agree with you that most of us are, are trained to be passive consumers of our content, um, sit and watch television or watch movies or um, then the internet and, and the world of, of video games and, and web-based mm-hmm. games came and all of a sudden we realized we had agency in a digital world or with our content. And maybe the, the truth is that it's just that a lot of the VR work hasn't taken full advantage of enabling the person having the experience to you know, really have embodied agency and, and co-authorship. Some of it is still quite passive, where I'm not personally a big believer that that a 360 view or, or spheric view is enough to create a truly immersive experience. I mean, yes, you're surrounded by it, but it's still basically a passive experience. The only agency you have is choosing where to look, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, bigger screen. I mean, maybe it's just that that the creators aren't pushing the medium far enough yet, mm-hmm to really let us have these incredibly embodied experiences. I mean, I think back to the, the work that DV Group was doing with Alice VR or mm-hmm. um, Jack. Do you remember that Jack you. VR? You know, those were great examples of being in a VR experience but having a really um, multisensorial and participatory um, ride of, of a story experience. Those were exciting. To your point... If I'm going to put a human being in in this space, I do need to figure out how human beings think. <laughs> I need to think about how human beings interact with the world. Like it's human centered design at its very core. Like it is, it is literally that. Um, and so, on top of that, beyond just thinking about the human in the loop, you also have to think about the environment around that person and the circumstances under which that person is there. But the hard part. Uh, which is the part that I think we could totally do more prototypes about and make it fun, you know? It doesn't have to be something super serious or take forever, is this idea of how do I make this world 
have a better relationship with this person? Like, how do I have the world need that person in order to be what it needs to be? And right now, the VR experiences I'm seeing, and I'm sure you're seeing, have a world that it doesn't matter if you're there or not, really. Like, you, you could be somebody else, and it wouldn't, wouldn't mean anything. So if I'm going to bring this person in, I sure as heck have to make, the, make sure that the world makes them feel like <laughs> that, you know? Um, so to your point, you know, it, that it goes into ideas around contextually adaptive assets, like who are you, mm-hmm. what's your height, what's your, you know, have you used VR before or not, that kind of, that kind of thing. Um, you know, it's something that changes. It's very fluid. It's something that should change all the time. It should never be static. And the great thing is, you know, people try to replicate how things work in the real world in VR. And it's like, why? <laughs> like, you can build whatever you want. You, see, you can change everything. You can change concepts of time and space in ways that you, you can't do in the real world. It's an exciting suggestion about dynamic and responsive worlds and characters in our stories. And certainly it's one of the promises of digital storytelling, of the possibilities today. Totally. And I think many creators are limited by uh, how things were made before and what they grew up experiencing. And it's hard to sometimes let go and get out ahead of where things have been. I think you did make the point also that similarly, the people who are consuming these experiences have to have a familiarity, have to be able to be comfortable with, let's say, being a character that's evolving and changing. I agree with you. Making VR is very hard. Like, I, I don't want to knock anyone for trying at all. Like, just making this stuff is 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 time-consuming. It's not a walk in the park, let's say. Um, on that front, I remember, I mean, when I was first starting out, I thought about how hard it was, too. It takes forever to, for me to make these things and release them and all this stuff. It's, like, really frustrated. So I decided to make some limitations for myself. I spent one day, I only gave myself a day, and I told myself, you can only use what's on YouTube, and you can't overthink it. No overthinking, just make something that is weird and wonderful or whatever. And so I ended up taking four panels of the Weather Channel that were screenshot during different times, during the 90s. I put each panel in, in, in one of the coordinates. It was, on, you know, it was a black space with Weather Channel panels. And when you look down, it said, Welcome to Omaha, because these are all Omaha captures. I don't know why. Um, and then if you look up, you see a gif of Kenny G playing <laughs> his saxophone. And the entire time you're listening to Kenny G, uh, as you look at these panels. And I didn't think anything of it. I released it, and it took off completely on its own, mostly because people were like, I, it wasn't, it didn't take itself too seriously. You could see it at a bar, and no one's like, no, 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 you have to see it this way. Like, no, it's just you, you hold up your phone, you do it. You could lay on your back and watch Kenny G for as long as you like. I had people over the world who were, I had a, a VR creator from Iran who said, I, I don't know what this is, but I really like it. Um, I had someone from Argentina tell me that she remembers traveling to hotel rooms with her parents in the U.S., and that was one of the tried-and-true channels that was always on, and so it was a nostalgic thing for her. She felt safe in it. So it was a pretty awesome, like, on-ramp for folks to think about 360 or think about these kind of spaces they could create. So you are now thinking a lot about interfaces. I am. Is that right? I am, Yes. And, and I guess it's a topic that's sort of always been in your mind 
because you've always been interested in technology and how we interact with it and humanize it. But tell me a little bit about your work on interface design. Yeah, I promise I'm not going to talk about like, you know, I was born in 1984. I do want to mention something about my childhood, though. Um, <laughs> I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania. My dad was an amateur uh, programmer. He worked mostly in HyperCard at the time and used to build programs for me to learn. And so very early on, I was using a computer almost like a companion to learn more about the world. And the engineer was my dad. So I knew where it was coming from. You know, like it was fairly transparent for me as a kid. And another thing, great thing about my dad is he, he also comes from a long line of farmers. So the natural world was always something that, that we enjoyed. I had both things happening at the same time, and I never saw them as being mutually exclusive. It was all part of my existence. So over time, I, I, you know, again, I had that benefit of having that duality, not even duality, it was, it was a singular thing, but it, you know, obviously two different worlds were emerging. And it was really hard for a while because as a result, you know, I would have this creative storytelling side, you know, which inevitably led me to being a filmmaker. And then I also had this technical side so I was like, you know, living in this duality for forever. Google, same thing. Here I am being a filmmaker, trying to get close to that, to that kernel of, you know, where, where storytelling and technology can actually meet um, and how I could show how these interfaces were human. Like, how do we humanize this stuff? So for me, you know, we're at this point, to your point, um, where I think we're building a lot of things in silos and you're seeing a lot of plateauing happening. So... You know, VR has its thing going on, AR has its thing going on, spatial audio has its thing going on. But what I can say is that the infrastructure of, say, blockchain is phenomenal. And as it relates to privacy and how we, you know, transfer our information to others, including companies like Google and Apple and, you know, Facebook or whatever, the control factor, the privacy, the transparency uh, is fantastic. And even the idea of tokenization you know, NFTs aside, the tokenization and DAOs, like all of that is, is really fascinating and I think play a part. So I can't help but want to put them all together to optimize that in some such a way that, you know, we're, we're, we're going towards this era of spatial computing. There's no doubt about that. You know, we're going to start to make our world our computer. But that means that we need to reconnect with the world. We need to build these systems with the world in mind. And... That is not going to be folders, windows, uh, tabs, keyboards, mice. We can no longer co compartmentalize in that way. Um, we don't have the time or the attention span to do that. You know, we're going to be dealing with so much information. So for me, I just feel like this is exactly where my brain should be right now, which is, you know, how do we create an interface? What is that interface that brings together... Um, these three domains, again, the way that it sh probably should have been in the beginning. You know, us, we human beings, the system itself, and the real world. But it also requires us to develop systems and system interfaces that respect the fact that we have that relationship with the world and aims to augment us to thrive, you know, in the world in a way that helps us, assists us uh, in living our lives. No pressure, <laughs> you know. that'll be easy yeah i'll do it tomorrow <laughs> but yeah you got it well I, I love it just because it does feel like you're you're working towards something that's going to ultimately be more 
um, human and more natural and something that, that will be bringing those parts of, of the life that you described growing up together, mm-hmm. you know, being, being able to be real people in a real, in a real world. <laughs> I know I said in the beginning, you know, um, or wherever this guy got into it, uh, I said I didn't uh, look for VR, VR found me. Looking back on that comment, I don't know if that was necessarily true entirely. I feel like we all put a pin in something that we think is kind of our life's work or I don't say, I don't know if legacy is really the right word, but there is something for us out there. And I think we, whether or not we see it or not, or, or consciously understand it or not, I think we do put a pin in it, you know, like Charlie, I'm sure you did that too. You know, you're like, okay, like, I don't know exactly where all this is going, but I know if I keep following it, it's going to take me where I need to go. And that has been my career in a nutshell, where I think at one point my husband was like, how do all of these projects actually work together? They're all over the place. I'm like, you have to trust me that eventually all this will, like, it's all going to collide. It's all going to become cohesive. I can't not do five different kinds of projects at the same time. I have to be aware of what's going on because eventually these things have to talk to each other. And if I don't know or respect one thing, then it's the whole thing's not going to work. It's not going to function. It has to be something that I consider from all angles, much like any experience, I guess. What was the name of the first piece you did, VR? It was a, a World Tour. Very, very world specific. Tour. <laughs> well, I'm excited to join you on your world tour, whatever, whichever direction this next phase of your journey takes you. Let's go. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Great to be with you. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Charlie. It's always good to talk to you. Warm thank you to Jessica Brillhart for joining me on today's episode. You can find out more about Jessica's work, including links to World Tour, Vray Pictures, and the USC's Institute for Creative Technology Mixed Reality Lab in the episode's description. My sincere thanks to all of you who listened to our show. If you enjoyed the podcast and want more Faust in your life, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts and sign up for our free monthly newsletter at FOST.org. The Future of Storytelling podcast is produced by Melcher Media in collaboration with our talented production partner, Charts and Leisure. I hope we'll see you again soon for another deep dive into the world of storytelling. Until then, please be safe, stay strong, and story on.